Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Let's start out the show by thanking our lovely patrons for this week. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we have breadsticks. I like breadsticks. Ooh. Diane, Jeanette, Jennifer, and Carolyn. Um, Thank you guys so much. I would also like to give a show shout out to listener Jay. I met Jay last night, I think, and he plays piano at my brother's bar in Echo Park. My, the name of my brother's bar is El Prado. Go there, ask for Nikki Fisher. That's his name. It's a really uh, cute little bar. Anyway, Jay plays piano over there, and he was playing piano when I was there, and he played an SWV song, and I was like, yes, this guy is, <laughs> this guy is good. I personally, I was like, oh, this is for me. This yes. is like amazing. I felt, I was like an honor to hear him play that song. So thank That's you, nice. Jay. Thanks for listening to the show. Hi, Jay. Hey. We'll have to both go. Yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. Sunday fun. nights he plays. Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. So to finish off our all Manson August. That's not really about the Manson case, but is Manson adjacent. Mm -hmm. We are going to be talking about Beach Boy Dennis Wilson. Ooh. Desi, do you like the Beach Boys? Um, I like some of their songs and I appreciate them. Right. But it's not like a band I listen to a lot. Yeah. I do love some of their songs though. Same. For sure. Same. So, yeah. And I find them interesting. Like, like I'm excited uh, to hear the story. It's a pretty interesting story and I'm definitely going to say up top, like, you know, I, I go into some of their musical stuff, but I mean, there's just so many avenues to explore with that. So don't at me if I didn't get to some particular, you know, in depth about some album or whatever right. that you want to hear about. Cause there's a lot with the beach boys. And I do think in the future, we will probably do an episode on Brian Wilson because he has quite a story as well. Yes. too. So Dennis Wilson was born December 4th, 1944 in Inglewood, California to Audrey and Murray Wilson. He grew up with his siblings, older brother Brian and younger brother Carl in Hawthorne, California, which is like by the South Bay. It's like in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Also living in Hawthorne was Mike Love, the cousin of the Wilson brothers. So Mike Love of the Beach Boys has a memoir called Good Vibrations, My Life as a Beach Boy. And that is one of our primary sources for this week's episode. So Brian, so the Wilson brothers, they lived in Hawthorne, really close to Mike Love, their cousin. Mike said that Brian Wilson was basically like a brother to him. They were best friends and spent a lot of time together during their early years. Both of them were a few years older than Dennis Wilson. In his book, Good Vibrations, Mike Love described his Uncle Murray as, quote, blunt, brusque, pipe-smoking, bull of a man. Throughout his life, Dennis sort of, like, butted heads with his father. And I think the rest of the Wilson boys did as well. Like, he was a very... He had a temper. He definitely had a bit of a temper, and he was pretty controlling as well. And they were, especially when they would go on to work with him later professionally when they were the Beach Boys. So we'll get into that later. Now, Murray Wilson had lost an eye in a harpoon accident, and he wore a glass eye. What? I mean, that is a pretty extreme injury. I mean, that seems like crazy that your dad had that injury, and then you become the Beach Boys. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what are the chances? There's a lot of nautical stuff in this story. Okay. I mean... I mean, it doesn't get more nautical than that. Than losing your eye in a harpoon accident? I mean, I think. While while whaling or something? (laughs) I mean, it's pretty wild. Yeah. So Mike says that sometimes Murray would pop his glass eye out and make his son stare directly into the empty socket. To be honest, every person I've known who has a glass eye does that. 
I and mean, I've known a few. Good for them, eyes. honestly. I guess you have to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> you got to either like scare people, like get, you have to have some fun with it, right. I guess. Because it's pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know about doing it to your children as a disciplinary No, means. I've seen a child cry. Yeah. When the person I, would probably I, when cry the person I know did that once to a child, they did start crying. Yeah. Which is its own funny part. <laughs> but, like, you can't laugh when it's happening. Right. But obviously. Right. <laughs> like that's its own funny. Well, because it's to just it. like to see a child burst into tears in one single second just from that. It must be quite shocking for a child. Yeah, <laughs> like for popping for real. your eyeball out. That's so. Yeah, it, scary. it's definitely abusive behavior from the dad. I would say. Yeah, like he would do this to sort of intimidate them. That was like a tactic. Weird. Look in my eye. Look where the and then he pops it out and puts it right up to them. <laughs> Not that eye, my glass eye. Right. So Murray had dreamed of breaking into the music business, but his dream never came. So there was... Oh, boy. Yes. So there was definitely some resentment going on there. Nothing worse than parents with (laughs) with lost dreams. (laughs) We all have heard many stories like this before. Yeah. So this contributed to him acting out against his sons, and... Dennis was on the receiving end of most of his rage. Oh. Murray would discipline his sons with belt whippings, but Dennis was the only one who would actually fight back. Oh. So even though Dennis yearned for his father's approval, he was the most rebellious out of all the siblings. Okay. Like he would he would retaliate yeah. and and throw punches at his dad too. Damn. Now this is a quote from Mike Love's book. Some of Dennis's teenage stunts were more serious, such as using a BB gun to shatter windows from passing cars, lighting a neighborhood brush fire with, with alcohol from a chemistry set, or throwing a screwdriver at the head of a fellow student. He was kicked out of school at least once, and a deep scar under his chin was evidence of his brawling, frenetic youth. He had plenty of friends and a generous spirit and attracted girls in droves, but even as a young teen, he raged against the world. Okay. Now, music was a really big part of the Wilson family and the Love family as well. On Christmas, the two families would get together and go caroling, and there were often family sing-alongs that they would do. Like, this was a family who was always fucking singing. And the kids were into it as well. Dennis, not so much, honestly. He was kind of like the, what are you fucking dorks doing? (laughs) That's me. Yeah. (laughs) But like, you know... We'll talk about in our Brian Wilson episode in the future. Like yeah. he was like, I mean, this guy was a prodigy. Like, right. I mean, from a very young age, the Beach Boys formed in 1961 and consisted of Brian Wilson, Dennis Wilson, Carl Wilson, Mike Love, and Al Jardine. They were originally called the Pendletones, named after Pendletons that surfer boys often wore. The, the flannels, flannels, yes. Yeah. But the record company changed their name to the Beach Boys after their first single, Surfin, dropped. From a young age... Those record executives? Dude, they did it also without telling them. Like, their, oh, really? Their single dropped, and it was like, the Beach Boys, and they were like, what the fuck? I mean, the Beach Boys has always struck me as a corny name. Yes. But I do have to say it's better than the Pendletones. <laughs> like, well, I like the Pendletones, but I feel like... I wonder if they would have been as big. Yeah. Do you know what it's I mean? Not, it doesn't roll off the tongue the way right. that the Beach Boys does. Yeah, absolutely. And the Pendletones sounds so dated. It sounds like a lot of bands of that time yes. had to have like a pun and like a lot of them had tones. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. From a young age, Dennis took to surfing and Southern California beach culture. He loved parties, he loved the music, and he loved the girls. Though his cousin Mike Love surfed a little, Dennis was actually the only surfer out of all the Beach Boys. Mm. Dennis wasn't even originally going to be in the group, but his mom insisted that he join them. So he was like, okay, all right, I'll join the Beach Boys. Luckily. There were the Pendletones (laughs) before that. In 1962, the Beach Boys signed with Capitol Records and had a hit with their singles, Surf and Safari and 409. I mean... I know they were like originally like a surf pop rock band, but I do think it's pretty bold to release two songs with surfing in the title back to back. What was it? Surfing Safari? And well, the first single they ever had was surfing. And then the second, (laughs) and then the second single was surfing Safari. Right. And I (laughs) was listening or I was reading about like 
the genesis of surf and safari and like the, the how it came to be and right and i mike love was like well we decided like what if you surfed all around the world <laughs> right. went on a surf and safari not just in california but you know i like i like explanations for like a very simple idea i love it i honestly <laughs> live for it and 409 giddy up 409 which okay you know is so such an old song that i've literally seen it used in that commercial for the cleaning agent 409 oh. 409 <laughs> so with this success brian wilson dropped out of college while younger brother carl remained in school dennis who at the time was suspended from high school just decided to drop out never came back he's like well why bother why even bother i yeah. mean he was getting suspended all the time sure he's like well i got this going for me yeah. now and mike love quit his job at the family sheet metal factory when Mike Love divorced his wife in 1963, they got married super young and had two kids. Him and Dennis moved into an apartment together. It was basically a nonstop party with drinking and girls and just like randos crashing at the place. And I mean, why wouldn't it be? They're like, Dennis is in his late teens at this point. Mike Love is in his early 20s. He's like 20 or something. Okay. After finishing a two-week tour of the Midwest, the Beach Boys were in the airport lounge in Iowa waiting for their flight back home. Dennis filled a squirt gun with piss and began firing at everyone in the airport lounge. I mean, I have to imagine some men in business suits got pretty upset about that. I I wish we knew if he just stuck his dick. Like, you know, I have to pull that little plastic thing out and it still kind of toggles. Yes. (laughs) Like, how did you get the piss in there? That was pretty hard, even with a faucet. Or a hose. Yeah, because it he splashes had to get that everywhere. Stream right inside that little toggle. He must have had a very steady stream. Yeah. And, and he, he probably pissed all over himself. I'm sure he did. So he had to wash up. Right. Okay. So he takes this squirt gun filled with piss. He squirts it all over everyone at the airport lounge. And Mike Love was really upset about it, obviously. I mean, that's like the old, that's an acceptable reaction. Yeah. If someone's be squirting irritated. piss. And Dennis thought it was fucking hilarious. Mm. And so Mike was like, we need to take this outside. So they beat the shit out of each other outside the airport. Wow. Yeah. There was friction during another tour when former Beach Boys member David Marks had temporarily replaced Al Jardine. Al, I think, went back to school at that point. So they had this guy David Marks fill in. David got into a fight with then-manager Murray Wilson, the Wilson boys' father. He was concerned that the boys were partying too much on the road, so he fired their road manager and joined them on the road. I mean, that has to be a bummer when your dad is like, I'm coming on the road with you guys. So he needed to supervise. And like, they were pretty bummed out about that. When Dennis told his dad that some of the guys had uh, contracted VD, he lost it. Wow. I mean, also, Dennis, why are you snitching? Truly. I mean, maybe they needed to go to like the doctor, but... That's like a little embarrassing. Yeah. He and you can just go to the doc- doctor on your own. Yeah. You don't need your dad. He was like, hey, every- hey, these guys got gonorrhea and I'm the only one who didn't get it. By, by luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just by sheer luck, he didn't get it. David Marks shot back. Well, we're the ones who are making you rich. He was like not having any of Murray's bullshit. Bullshit. He was like, fuck you. Like, yeah. we're, we're putting money in your pocket. David was so mad at Murray that during performances, he replaced lyrics to the songs as they were singing. So instead of Little Deuce Coop, he sang, She's my little douche kid. <laughs> douche kid? Yeah, like a kit that's for douching. <laughs> oh, yeah, a douche kit. <laughs> <laughs> and instead of, uh, She's real fine, my 409, he said, She's real fine, my 69. Ooh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I always appreciate a good lyric change. I like the 69 one better. Yeah. It's good. It's cute. Yeah. So Murray was probably blowing his top. (laughs) He probably had steam coming out of his ears and the dickie rolling up when he heard that. (laughs) By August of 1963, David Marks was out of the band. That was very short-lived. So... By the end of 1963, the Beach Boys released a very successful Christmas album and were enjoying their success as one of the most popular bands in America. Another great tour story came from 1964 when the Beach Boys were in Australia. It was there that they opened up for a popular local band called the Joy Boys. (laughs) I'm sorry, that is a terrible name. 
I mean, it's like, how do you get worse than the Beach Boys? <laughs> the Joy Boys? Like, it's terrible. What even? They're on tour. They're in Australia. They're opening up for the Joy Boys. And during the after party, an orgy broke out. Uh-oh. Mike Love says that one of the members of the band, of the Joy Boys, to be clear, rolled up a newspaper, put it, made it into a funnel shape, and stuck it up his ass. Up Mike Love's ass? No, up oh. his own ass. Okay. <laughs> I was like, imagine admitting to that. Right. <laughs> and then he kept he no. put french fries in it with malt vinegar. <laughs> and had some muscles on the side. He then lit the newspaper on fire. What? And began dancing around the room with this like torch sticking out of his ass. I, I mean... mean- <laughs> That's just, I just don't love pranks that much that I would, like, I don't get that mentality where you injure yourself to party. <laughs> like, do you it's know what I so, mean? Like, like, what is the point of that? And they were calling this like the Australian fire dance or something. Okay. Also imagine all of his ass hair singeing <laughs> the smell. <laughs> like, I just imagine it like getting down to the bottom and he's like, keep blowing out, blow it out, blow it out. Can you imagine so, being the person who had to blow it out? Yeah. Like, oh, what a nightmare. And several Some other poor girl. Yeah, <laughs> totally. To but several other of the band members of the joy boys were like, yeah, that looks neat. And they did it too. <sighs> Men later. Mike says that him and Dennis brought a variation of that move back to the States and they too showed it off at their own party. What was their variation? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe they did it with a magazine. Yeah, they did it with a Playboy. (laughs) (laughs) So Murray Wilson was relentless when it came to policing the boys' behavior on tour. I mean, he couldn't catch the newspaper in the ass, but... But what he did see, he, he would have been outraged. That would, I would have loved for him to walk in on that. <laughs> he would find the boys if he caught any of them swearing in front of the press or in front of fans. He, Dude, how could they, how have they not fired him yet? <laughs> I would have been like, bye dad, you're out of here. Get, well, this is the, this is the leading up to him being fired. Okay. Uh, he was always bullying Brian about being a man. You got to be a man. I don't Ugh. want you to grow up to be one of these. Holly- You're a beach boy. <laughs> you need to be a beach man. <laughs> <laughs> the beach men sounds so creepy. That sounds like perverts. <laughs> totally. They comb a the photo beach. journalist exploration. <laughs> The creeps at the beach. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So he he was like, you need to grow up to be a man. And that was sort of the genesis for when I grew up to be a man. Oh. Which is one of my favorite Beach Boys songs. I love that song. The band agreed that he needed to go. And Murray lost it when the Beach Boys fired him as manager. He was not happy about it. He was even mad at his wife, Audrey, for allegedly being too soft on the boys. Like, you know, she was, she didn't, uh, you know, berate them enough. She didn't discipline them enough. Ironically, they were finally being strong. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Murray wrote a letter in August of 1964 titled Last Will and Testament, which is always like, Unless you're like literally like dying or something, like I feel like when you're in a rage and you write a letter called Last Will and Testament, that's like really dramatic. It's super dramatic. This is a, a, an excerpt from the letter. When Audrey told me on this date, August 7th, 1964, that she did not enjoy intercourse with me anymore, although she would pretend to be my wife and even sleep in the same bed with me, this proved to my satisfaction that she did not love me anymore. I mean, that is a total sir. Wait, he published this? Yes. (laughs) And I'm telling you, this is a sir, this is a Wendy's moment. If Audrey Wilson, my wife, is not legally married to me at the time of my death, I ask the court handling my estate to see that she receives only half of any said monies. Wow. So I, yeah, it is like hilarious that he like brought his sex life into this last one. For no reason. For no reason. Like, oh my God. Sir, please calm down. (laughs) By the end of 1964, the stress of touring had taken its toll on Brian. He basically quit all live performances and tours with the band that's what he decided to do at this point. And this is like the peak of their success. Right. But as we'll get into in another episode, you know, Brian definitely, he, he had suffered 
a really bad panic attack on this flight, like all of the pressure and the Mm -hmm. busy schedule and just everything that was going on with this like sudden sharp ascent in their careers. Right. He just couldn't take it and he had a panic attack and it was too much and he was suffering from some mental health issues. So he decided... I'm gonna. I'm still in the band. I'm gonna con- continue writing and producing and recording, but just in the studio. I'm gonna stay in the studio. I'm not doing live shit yeah. anymore. So he was replaced by Bruce Johnston for their live shows. In 1965, 20 year old Dennis Wilson married his girlfriend, 18 year old Carol Friedman. She had an infant son named Scott when they got together, and they would later have their own daughter together. They moved into a large home in Benedict Canyon. Though Dennis was rich and successful, he wasn't concerned with material things. He was always considered very generous and had a reputation for just giving things away and his possessions and giving money away. He was definitely trusting to a fault. In 1966, Pet Sounds was released. And though Pet Sounds wasn't initially as successful as previous Beach Boys releases, the album would later go down as one of the most celebrated in music history. And I put that blurb in there specifically so people wouldn't at reply me. Why didn't you talk about Pet Sounds? (laughs) Pet Sounds. I like Pet Sounds. I do too. But it is sort of men need to calm down. White men need to calm down about Pet Sounds. And I get it. It's a genius album. Right. But it's I like knew next level at rep, like reply guy. I knew I was gonna get like a. I knew I was gonna get like a wave of reply guys if I didn't at least right. mention Pet Sounds in uh-huh. this episode. We get it, which guys. I I agree. It is a great album. Yeah, it's fucking great. God only knows is literally one of the best songs ever written. Mm-hmm. But co- please, please, I mentioned <laughs> I mentioned the album. Please, please leave me alone. In 1968, Dennis split with his wife, Carol, and was living in a hunting lodge that he rented off West Sunset by Will Rogers State Beach. And in the spring of 1968, Dennis picked up two young women who were hitchhiking off the Sunset Strip. Dennis brought them back to his home. He told them that he had been involved with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, a guru who created transcendental meditation. The Beach Boys had gone on tour with the guru, and... They would play their set, and then the Maharishi would give a talk on meditation. He was like, they were the opening act for the Maharishi, basically. Right. But people were like buying tickets to see the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. and then they'd be like, okay, here's our main event. <laughs> this guy's going to come on and give a talk about transcendental meditation. That would be like Marianne Williamson coming on like after right. a Nine Inch Nails show or something like totally, whatever. Like totally, and like obviously fans were like, "What the fuck is this shit?" Yeah. I didn't. Can you imagine? I, I came to see the Beach Boys. I would be walking out. They so did fast. walk out, and like booed. she should have been the opening act at least. Did so they he, had to sit there. People literally booed him while he was talking about transcendental meditation, which amazing. is amazing. Honestly, I would love to see that scene. Me too. I would. That's my ideal setting. That is high comedy. <laughs> so, and obviously at this point, like. Uh, Mike Love, especially, like he got super into transcendental meditation, okay. and so, so I mean, this guy was like everywhere. This guy was like really hot in the late '60s with rock bands, absolutely from the West. Dennis is telling these two girls this story about I know the I know the Maharishi, yeah. and I'm we're into all this stuff, and we have our own guru. And the girls told Dennis, "Well, we know a guru too." Yeah, the name. So is- just calm down, bitch. <laughs> And our guru likes to do things a little bit differently. Yeah. The girls that Dennis picked up that day were named Patricia Krenwinkle and Ella Jo Bailey. Late one night in June, Dennis returned home and noticed that the lights were on in his house. Now, this wasn't particularly unusual because this was a party house. Right. And there were people coming and going, and Dennis was like very free willing with his like stuff and his space. But a strange man that he didn't know walked out of the house. This guy had long hair and a beard. Dennis asked the man if he was going to hurt him. And the man then proceeded to knelt at, to kneel at Dennis's feet and kiss them. This man, spoiler alert, was Charles Manson. <laughs> can you imagine having him kiss your feet? Dude. <laughs> can you imagine having him kiss your feet and that not being the end of that interaction forever? Right. I mean, that would have been, it's over. It's over. Yeah. Sir? Sir, get yourself an Uber. (laughs) And leave. (laughs) Get out of here. 
It wouldn't be long before Manson and his girls would move into Dennis Wilson's house. Oh, sorry. There's two types of people in there, this there, world. There are t- literally Desi. Well, apparently he always had people staying there. Yes. Because they're probably passing out at his parties. Totally. Just, yeah. In his book, Mike Love describes Dennis as, quote, a perfect mark. He also says, quote, Dennis was famous, well-connected, a famous, well-connected entertainer who could help a musical neophyte get discovered. Dennis lived in a luxurious house on three acres with a swimming pool and plenty of guest rooms. Guileless about others, indifferent about his own possessions, a rebel in his own right, Dennis was all too happy to allow Manson and his girls to move in, use his charge cards, take his clothes, eat his food, even drive his Mercedes. Manson, after all, had something for Dennis, a stable of young women who catered to his every desire. Dennis also was like at this point where he's just searching, Mm -hmm. you know, he's searching for something and yeah. And he was like a sex maniac too. So of course he wants like all these young girls who are just going to fuck all the time. Right. So that sounds like he doesn't have to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And this weird guy with the beard, he's saying some stuff that, you know, makes some sense. Like that's what he's thinking also at this point. This is uh, in a quote from a June 1984 article from Rolling Stone from one of Dennis's friends named Chris Clark. Everything, uh, whatever he did, he did in excess, uh, including sex. Dennis was a notorious womanizer. He was never able to remain faithful to one woman. uh, This is a quote from Chris Clark again. He called himself the wood. Yeah. And then he gestured to his crotch. Um, thank you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I would have never guessed what wood meant yeah. in that circumstance. I mean... He called himself the wood, points to crotch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you know what I the mean? wood, get like, it? You get some wood, get some wood in your pants, a woody. <laughs> Giddy up 409. <laughs> the hell? Obviously, Charles Manson believed that he could spread his insane message through music and Dennis was someone that he could really easily exploit. At this time in his life, Dennis had been experimenting with LSD for a few years, and Charles Manson was known to regularly feed it to Dennis. He also thought that Manson had something musical to offer the okay. world. Yeah. He was like, he, he believed in him musically. Right. Um, I mean, I'm sure he. you have to be on a lot of drugs to think that. Look, I've heard we've some heard, of this Yeah, <laughs> it's like... It's it's not. What was the garbage excellent. one? The garbage truck or the garbage dump? I can't. That's like his big hit. His big hit <laughs> in quotes. Like they always play on like any Manson related show, right? About like a garbage dump or garbage truck. I can't remember. It's Sounds pretty, compelling. It's very compelling. One night, Mike Love and Bruce Johnston came over to Dennis's house, and obviously Manson was there with all the girls. So Manson put on a strobe light in the living room. And all the girls were there in the living room lying naked. He then handed out tabs of acid. And he's like, we're going to have an orgy right now. I mean, look, if someone puts a strobe light on for any reason, (laughs) I'm out of there. Seriously. Honestly, I I, I fucking hate strobe lights. It's not my scene. So Mike and Bruce were like, we're getting the fuck out of here. Right. And they left. Charles Manson was basically, he was creepy to everyone except for Dennis. Like, everyone else was like, who is this weird guy yeah. that Dennis is bringing around? And he... We all have that friend. We do. <laughs> but like I said, Dennis really believed it in his musical talents. He even wanted him to cut a track with Brother Records, which was the Beach Boys record label. Now, Manson was set to record at Brian Wilson's home studio, Stephen Desper, their audio engineer, said that his music was just okay, but that he smelled so bad he couldn't take it, and so he like quit. He's like, I'm not doing this. Wow. This guy smells that bad. Damn. I mean, honestly, you look at Charles Manson, and he does look like a very smelly person. Was it just from not showering? He didn't shower, but right. he just, yeah. I mean, yeah. You, could, you could see, you could tell he didn't shower. He's like a pig pen. He has the little lines around him constantly. <laughs> He just like, I just feel like it is a deep stench. Yeah. Yeah. Like he walks into a room. That's what I was asking. Was it just like hygiene, hygiene, bad hygiene? Or did he smell? Cause he was like 
at the ranch all day or whatever. Like, was there a scent? I, it that was, was probably a the- combination of many things. Yeah. But he probably didn't shower for some insane okay. reason. I'm yeah, sure. I'm sure. Manson had a song called Cease to Exist that Dennis liked enough that he ended up changing the lyrics a little bit. He changed the melody a little bit. And he basically turned this song into his own song called Never Learn to Love for the Beach Boys. And later on, the Beach Boys... I like how he just rewrote this. Yeah. It was actually a completely different song. <laughs> I know. I know. But people always say, they're like, oh, and the Beach Boys had, you know, took one of Manson's songs. It's like, well... How much did he change? I need to hear both of them back to back. But the Beach Boys, obviously, later on when they realized what he had done or that they were like so creeped out by that. Like, ew. Sometime in 1968, Mike Love's wife, Suzanne, revealed to him that she had slept with Dennis and that their marriage was over. Obviously, he was furious and heartbroken. Not that her wife had had an affair, but that specifically had an affair with his cousin and band member. When it was revealed to Dennis that Manson had a criminal past, combined with the fact that Manson and his girls had not only trashed his house, stolen most of his property, used his credit cards, and crashed his car, Dennis was feeling pretty over the family at this point. Yeah. He was like, okay... You've reached my line. You've re- I, 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 I don't, my line, my bar is very low, <laughs> but you've reached it. Yeah. Dennis was not good at confrontation and he needed a way to get Charles Manson and the girls out of his life, but without directly telling him to fuck off. Yeah. So what ended up happening is that when the Beach Boys went on tour, Dennis just left them all there in his house and waited for the lease to run out and for the landlord to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is the like most drunk thing decision to make. Honestly, I kind of get it. No, can I you get, imagine dealing with that family? Dude, I would dude. just be like, I was like, I would have burned the house down or something, like sent them all to the grocery store and like burned it down just to get rid of them. Like, I'm telling anything. you, I had someone who was a house guest who was supposed to only stay for like a week at my house and they ended up staying five weeks at my house and like getting them to leave, getting one person to leave who wasn't in a complete, a complete psychopath right. was difficult enough. Imagine, uh, nightmare. imagine getting the family to leave your house. No, I mean, I do get it. Yeah, I get what absolutely. he did. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So the family did leave the house and moved on to Spawn Ranch out in the desert, but Dennis was not fully free from Manson yet. He still thought Manson had a future in music at this point, oh, which Dennis. is insane. <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's really creepy and they were like trash my I house. I don't want him in my house, but I still want to record. <laughs> like, come on. It's so sad. He had even introduced him to record producer Terry Melcher. In a May 1969 interview with London magazine Rave, Dennis was asked if there was anything that frightened him. This was Dennis's response. Fear is nothing but awareness. I was only frightened as a child because I did not understand fear. The dark, being lost, what was under the bed. It came from within. Sometimes the wizard frightens me. Charlie Manson, who is another friend of mine who says he is God and the devil, he sings, sings, plays, and writes poetry, and maybe another artist for Brother Records. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's so crazy. That is an insane response yeah, to that question. Because it goes off the rails. Well, it doesn't even make sense. I just imagine the interviewer was like expecting, is there anything that frightens you? Like yeah. being alone. Yeah. You know? Dying. Yeah, dying. <laughs> Heights. <laughs> My friend who says he's God. Like, imagine saying that sentence. <laughs> and, and and we're going to record him, too. But his relationship with Manson ended for good after he witnessed something particularly horrific at Spawn Ranch. According to Mike Love, Dennis came over to Brian's house where him and Mike were in the studio. He told them that he saw Manson shoot a black man and stuff his body down a well, and that he was too afraid to call the police. 
that's that was like the final straw uh-huh. for him completely cutting him out of his life. I mean, not so that's the final straw, <laughs> which is like, I mean, and it's interesting because like Mike Love talked about in the book, he's like, I mean, Manson was really racist and like apparently that was OK because with with right. Dennis, like he didn't you know, he didn't like like there were all these like horrible things about Manson from, just from the gate. Right, a lot of people did not find Manson charming. Right, right. So exactly. So Manson eventually moved on once he realized that Dennis couldn't deliver, and he decided that his next plan was to get close to Terry Melcher, who lived at 150 Cielo Drive. But by that time, Terry Melcher had already moved out of the Cielo Drive home by January of 1969, which it was then at that time occupied by Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. This is a quote from Mike Love's book. The move was no accident. I was good friends with Terry and also got to know Doris as well. That's referring to Doris Day, his mother. Terry, Doris's only child, was extremely close to his mom. He had told her about Manson and some of his scary antics, his brandishing of knives, his zombie followers, and that Manson had been to the house on Cielo Drive. This petrified Doris, and both Doris and Terry told me that she insisted he move out. A mother's intuition, perhaps, it may have saved his life. After the Tate-LaBianca murders, Dennis couldn't bring himself to mention Manson, and especially his relationship to Manson, to anyone. He even refused to testify against him. He just wanted it all to go away. I mean, he really, like, he would, this is a subject that he just would not touch. Right. At all. Um, And obviously, Terry Melcher was traumatized by this experience as well, feeling like, I guess, survivor's guilt. Yeah, that it could have been me there. It could have been me there. And that's why they were there, probably. Right. So he suffered for a very long time because of this. And I mean, I get it. It totally makes sense. And, you know, Dennis took to hitting the bottle even harder at that point, even though he was already... Having alcoholism and and, yeah, and drug drug problems at this point, but he really just sort of he wanted to shut it out of his brain yeah. completely. The affair between Suzanne and Dennis continued after her and Mike separated. Now Terry Melcher was close with Mike Love, and he revealed to him that when Suzanne and Dennis would go out together on dates, they would hire babysitters to take care of their kids, unbeknownst to Mike, like. So his kids and her kids with Mike Love, right? Yes, yeah. his and her kids with Mike Love. So they would, she would go on these dates with Dennis, and instead of her staying home with the kids, she would go on dates and hire babysitters so she could go on the date with Dennis. And on one occasion, they hired Susan Adkins to babysit. What? Yes. This is after Manson got busted? This is after the murders. This is after... Was she everything. not arrested yet? No, they hired her to babysit before all of the murders. Oh, but okay. But Terry is revealing this to Got Mike it. Love. after the fact. After the fact. He's like, you know that Susan Atkins woman, one was of their babysitter. Babysat yeah. for your kids. Damn. It was Susan Atkins who was the one who held Sharon Tate down as she was stabbed to death, killing her unborn child. Mike says that learning that she had been their babysitter the babysitter of his children broke him more than the affair ever could. I mean, obviously. Yeah. That is like a pretty horrific thing to find out. Really? Yeah. yeah. In 1970, Dennis married Barbara Charon, and they had two sons together, Michael and Carl. By the early 70s, the Beach Boys were struggling to reinvent themselves and stay current and with the changing musical landscape. And they had like a hard time sort of scrubbing this like kind of goody two-shoes image. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they were goody two-shoes ever. I but don't it was, either. I, I but don't, I think my initial impression of them was that they were goody two-shoes. Well, it was more just like they were slightly more clean-cut than a lot of the other popular bands at the time. Right. And like, and if your initial like knowledge of them is like the surf stuff, right. do you know what I mean? Like in the Beach Boy name, it makes you think, oh, they're just like one of those type of surf party bands. Yeah. And you don't... I don't think I recognized them until much later, like their better music, <laughs> like right. like the Pet Sounds and whatever. Uh, but yeah, so I can see how back then they right. had that trouble too. Yeah. They were recording new music, but their fans weren't even... 
that on board with the new music because they were right. the fans of the other stuff. Yes. I mean, it's a classic yeah. conundrum totally. for music. It's like, do you change or stay with what your fans want? Like, right. Yeah. During one concert in particular, while they were playing stuff from their latest album, which was 1971, Surf's Up, an audience member yelled out, I want to hear the car songs. <laughs> that is like... Oh, that guy. That guy. <laughs> He's like an early reply guy. <laughs> Dude, back in the old days, you had to just yell it out. <laughs> Even men were getting at re- annoying at replies. <laughs> yeah. In 1974, Dennis and Barbara divorced, and Dennis began dating model Karen Lamb. For their first date, they went to Mr. Chow in Beverly Hills. <laughs> Have I you love been- that. I love Mr. Chow. Have you been there? No, but I like the we history have to of go. It. Okay. We have to go. We talked about it. It is for an something. insane yeah. place. I only went there once back in 2007. I did not know it was that old. Desi, I thought it was an 80s. Let me no. Yeah. Let me tell you about Mr. Chow really quick. Okay. Mr. Chow has like not changed the decor since the 80s. It okay. is the most 80s fucking restaurant you've it. ever seen in your life. It is like shiny black and white everywhere and just like so dramatic. Ooh, I love black lacquer. It's so much black <laughs> lacquer, Desi. It's it is a ridiculous restaurant, and the food is really good, even right. though it's really expensive. Yeah. But I mean, we'll okay. go on one of our splurge okay. treating ourselves meals sometime, yeah. and we'll report back. Anyway, so they're at Mr. Chow, and it was in the middle of dinner that Dennis reached over and grabbed Karen's right breast and said, Great tits. Jesus. <laughs> Do we, this is their first date? Yes. Ugh. <laughs> Not at Mr. Chow's. <laughs> Take this to Lowry's. Seriously, this is a stinking, stinking rose type behavior. (laughs) So Karen told Rolling Stone that she was humiliated and that she ran to the bathroom and that she never wanted to see him ever again after that. Dennis, no. But they ended up getting married in 1976. (laughs) Cut to. Cut to. I mean, but then when I saw his dick, I was like, okay. So they got married in 1976, and they had a really fucked up, tumultuous relationship. I I mean, mean, by this time, Dennis was using heroin. He was drinking heavily. He was a mess. Okay. In 1975, Dennis hit Karen, which prompted her to get her 38 revolver and shoot a hole in the side of his Mercedes. They That's were to, such a rock and roll seventy. Oh my god! Fight. <laughs> Shoot your luxury car, asshole. They were divorced just seven months after marriage. After the after they got married, but they got back together and remarried. Oh boy! I mean, that is something I feel like people who remarry the same person only really rich and famous people do that. Yeah, that is an Elizabeth Taylor signature move, right? In 1978. Dennis drove Karen's Ferrari down to Venice Beach and lit the whole thing on fire. Wow. He poured lighter fluid all over it, just fucking went up in flames. And Ferrari. <laughs> Fuck you, man. <laughs> <laughs> and as the car is in flames, Dennis walks into a house on Venice in Venice Beach, just a random house, and sat down at the piano and just starts playing. Wow. Yeah. That's like, it's kind of reminding me of that gif everyone uses where Angela Bassett lights the car on fire. Totally. Right. And is walking. Right. Karen and Dennis divorced a second and final time. Why did he do this? I have no idea why he did that. So he's just. Because he's just out of his mind. He's out of his mind at this point. In 1977, following drama within the band, Dennis Wilson left the Beach Boys and went on to release his debut solo album, Pacific Ocean Blues, which okay. did not do well. Although I was reading some like yeah, later it's articles. Pretty, uh, pretty well-loved now. Now it yeah. is. It did mm-hmm. not do well at the time, which coincidentally enough, Pet Sounds did not do that well at right. first. Yeah. But then it became, became yeah. one of the most iconic albums of all time. He told this to the Los Angeles Times about why the Beach Boys, why he left the Beach Boys. 
It's more because the Beach Boys don't work enough. <laughs> there, there are months when nothing happens. Mike Love will go meditate for six months and we can't do anything. I did the album because I couldn't stand not being busy. Mm. So then, oh, by the way, he's doing this interview like while Karen Lamb, his wife, is with him at the time. And they're like, like this is after their first divorce. Okay. So they're like going to get married again, but they're not. They're divorced. They're not yeah. married at this point. Uh, they're going to get remarried soon. And um, this is a quote from Los Angeles Times. Did his solo album arouse any negative feelings among group members? No, answered Wilson, laughing sarcastically. Lamb countered. Oh, no, there's no jealousy in the group. Everybody wants what's best for everyone else. Her continued laughter emphasized that she didn't believe a word of what she had said. <laughs> After his split from Karen, Dennis began dating Fleetwood Mac's Christine McVie. Christine was quoted in Rolling Stone. It was probably the experience of a lifetime. Dennis was such a character. Half of him was like a little boy and the other half was insane. A real split personality. In 1980, Dennis reunited with the Beach Boys to join them on a European tour. And they went... The boys went on Good Morning America together, and during the show, which was live, by the way, and I watched this, Desi, and <laughs> you will have to see it because it is insane. Dennis is sitting slumped over and just sort of swaying around. Like, he's like this. <laughs> While they're on Good Morning America. Oh and you God. know those shows. Those shows are, like, so uptight and, and wholesome. peppy and wholesome. And the people watching it are, like... A certain type of audience. Absolutely. Yeah. This is like a very clean cut show. Yeah. And like it's first thing in the morning or whatever it is. It's like 10. No, it's like, I don't know. What is it's it? It's early. Nine, it's, it's like, like seven nine. to nine or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like good morning, America. Yeah. We're having this like very energetic peppy show. And uh, the Beach Boys are like, have re, they're reunited. They're having their European tour now and right. they're promoting it. And Dennis is like literally swaying around. The host, then the host goes, good morning, Dennis. Cause like, she's trying to like break the tension of like, yes. every, all the other boys are like, yeah, we're really excited for the tour. They're like ignoring it. They're yeah. They're just totally trying to ignore him, even though he is like chewing the scenery yeah. in this. I mean, it's ridiculous. The boys start laughing nervously. I mean, Dennis was either severely drunk or severely hungover in this right. clip and he's totally distracting. Dennis then lies down on the couch, like kind of in the fetal position. Like he just lies down. Like they're all sitting on this couch. Yeah. Um, and the interview is still going on and Dennis just sort of curls up Amazing. as it's going on. And he's dressed differently than all the boys. All the boys are like in kind of like pastels and like clean cut outfits. Yeah. And Dennis is in this like hippie, like brown outfit. That's oh just, God. I mean, he, he looks like a mess. The host then asked, Dennis, how are you doing over there? And then Dennis goes, I'm borrowing my brother's microphone. I'm borrowing my brother's microphone. He grabs the lapel mic from Carl and he speaks into the lapel mic because <laughs> he lost his lapel mic, I guess. And he goes, wait, is this ABC? <laughs> he had just woken up. <laughs> yeah. I, you have to watch this video. Okay. It is crazy. The following year, Dennis was accused by Mike Love's brother, Stan, of supplying Coke to Brian Wilson. Now, Brian at the time had his own troubles, and the last thing they wanted was somebody supplying a bunch of cocaine right. to him. Dennis denied this, but Stan was convinced that and something needed to be done. Stan had previously worked as Brian's bodyguard, so one day him and Brian's other former bodyguard, some guy named Rocky, showed up to Dennis's house and beat the shit out of him. What? And I read the description in Mike Love's book about this, like, them beating the shit out of him. I mean, it was, like, out of an action movie. They, like, pushed him through a plate glass window and it shattered. Damn. They grabbed him by the hair. Like, he broke his nose. Also, I'm sorry, but... I'm pretty sure Brian Wilson can get cocaine elsewhere. Like, sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah. He doesn't need Dennis's help. No. He was already doing cocaine before. Come on. Yeah. Silly. Yeah. That same year, Dennis's heart was broken when his boat, Harmony, was auctioned off. He had bought it in 1975, but could no longer afford the payments. Concerned about his well-being, the Beach Boys had tried many times to get Dennis help, but he was stubborn and refused treatment. 
Though his brother Brian was also struggling, he was a lot more willing to accept help and try again, try again, like do different things. Like he was a lot more willing to go check himself into treatment than Dennis was. One time Dennis did agree to go to the hospital, but on the way there, he snorted a bunch of heroin in the car and sort of like blew it off. Yeah. Basically. I mean, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that is a classic move. Yeah. And like, I laugh because I relate to all of this stuff. Right. At one point, Dennis was living with his teenage daughter. One day, she brought a friend home, a 17-year-old girl named Sean, who claimed to be the illegitimate child of Mike Love, which is Dennis's cousin. Now, a rudimentary paternity test was done because this is before DNA, so they just did like a blood test, I guess, to uh-huh. see. I don't know what they exactly looked for in those old They probably tests. could eliminate someone. Yes. Like by blood type. Right. Uh, because the girl's mother had filed a paternity suit. And the judge ended up ruling that she was not the child of Mike Love. But again, I don't know exactly because it wasn't like a, a, a modern DNA test was done with this. Right. This was just a blood test and a lie detector test was taken. And we all know lie detector tests are not very... Um, accurate. Accurate. Well... Her and Dennis moved in together and started a relationship. Well, that's good. Even though she said that she was the daughter of his cousin. (laughs) Besides the fact that she's also 17. She was 17 and Dennis... And he must be like, what, 38? 36. Okay. And Sean continued to use Mike Love's last name. So she's calling herself Sean Love. And she's like, yeah, I'm Mike Love. I'm your cousin's daughter. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things has to go for this to be better. (laughs) Dennis, I mean, Dennis is fucked up at this point. He does yes. not care. He's like, hot chick, yeah. nice tits. Dennis and Sean had a son, Gage, together. Oh, God. And they got married in July of 1982. And after a very messy relationship, obviously, they separated a few months later. He just loves love. <laughs> <laughs> he loves it. By the end of 1982, Dennis was out of money. After Brian was sent to rehab in Hawaii, the rest of the Beach Boys confronted Dennis and told him that he couldn't tour with them anymore until he also completed a rehabilitation program. Mm. So Dennis checked into a rehab in Arizona, but he left two days later. At this time, Dennis was basically couch surfing. He did not have his own home anymore, so he was just bouncing around at friends' houses from place to place. By Christmas of 1983, Dennis had plans to check into St. John's Hospital for detox, but he missed his son, so he went to go find him and Sean, his ex, instead. He hung out with them for about an hour before leaving to wander the streets of Santa Monica. It was there that he ran into a friend, and they spent the night drinking together at a bar. Dennis was later beaten up at the Santa Monica Bay Inn, which is the place that Sean and his son lived, by a male friend of hers. So who knows what Dennis did to get beaten up. He probably said some shit or did some shit. The next day, Dennis called his friend Steve Goldberg and asked him for some money and a ride. Steve said no, and Dennis hung up on him. On December 27th, Dennis phoned his friend Bill Oster, who was at the marina on his boat. It was 8 p.m. Dennis was hanging out with a woman named Colleen McGovern. He asked Bill if he could pick them up, and Bill was like, sure. So he picks them up, and they all headed back to the boat. But on the way there, Dennis insisted that they get some booze. He's like, we're going to be on a boat. Got to get some booze. I mean, you got to love this woman who's like going around with a guy who needs a ride. <laughs> like, who's 38 yeah, or 39 I mean, we are at this just, point. Women are just so forgiving. <laughs> he used to be a beach boy, Desi. Yeah. He was a beach boy. Um, Dennis was really excited to get on this boat. He's like, we're going on a boat. Yeah. I mean, some people are just really excited about boats. They I'm not one him. of those people. Yeah, I'm not a boat I'm person. I'm not a boat person. But Dennis was definitely a boat person. So he bought a fifth of vodka and some orange juice. According to Colleen, Dennis said that he had planned to go to detox the next day. He just needed one more night of partying. I mean, that is... Yeah. Don't I know it? Yeah. <laughs> don't I know that story? I have... I said that many times. Yeah. Did not end well. Dennis, Colleen, Bill, and Bill's wife, Brenda, all hung out in the cabin of the boat. Bill said to Dennis, I was telling Brenda, I hope the next time I, t- time we see Dennis isn't at his funeral. Dennis said, don't you worry about that. 
ha. <laughs> no, not ha ha ha. <laughs> now, Dennis was getting wasted. He passed out around midnight, but he was waking up frequently and pretty disoriented. Like yeah. he would wake up and just say random shit like, oh, honey, are you okay? Or like, right. you know, he yeah, was yeah, doing yeah. that drunk thing yeah. that happens. Uh, Bill was keeping an eye on him. And according to that Rolling Stone article, Dennis was drenched in sweat. In the morning, Bill suggested that they go out rowing, but Dennis said he needed a drink. And he was panicking because Brenda and Colleen had hid the booze from him. Oh. But Dennis eventually found it, and he was off to the races again. By noon, Dennis was wasted. He dove into the slip. I had to look up what a slip was, and that's like the strip of water between the boat and the dock. Right. Dennis dove into that water. He came back up and he handed Bill a piece of rope. Basically like, look what I found. (laughs) Dennis repeatedly dove back into the water. He kept retrieving junk and he brought it back up with him. Okay. Like one of the pieces of junk he found was this silver frame that he said was the same frame that used to hold a picture of him and his wife. Okay. So he yeah. was like, I, I got to keep, there's all this stuff oh, down God. here. I got to yeah. keep looking. Dennis returned to the boat for a couple hours and had something to eat, but he also kept drinking. He was not sobering up. Dennis wanted to get back in the water because he was convinced that there was treasure down there. Aww. After Dennis finished the, his bottle of vodka, he found a bottle of wine and he drank that. Bill said that there was no convincing Dennis not to get back in the water. Dennis dove in again. At this time, Bill was standing on the narrow pier that extended past the boats. He saw air bubbles in the water, and then he saw Dennis come up for air and then swim behind the rowboat. Bill shouted to Dennis, Dennis, what did you find? But he got no response. At this point, Bill thought that Dennis was playing a prank on him. He stood there on the pier smoking a cigarette as he waited for Dennis to come back up. Then he began to look for Dennis, but he didn't surface. The Harbor Patrol came and searched for 30 minutes before finding Dennis's body at around 5.45 p.m. He was pronounced dead, and he was 39 years old. Dennis had a blood alcohol level of 0.26. Damn. So I'm going to end with a quote from Mike Love's book about Dennis. Uh, This is what he had to say about when he found out that his cousin, his bandmate, his friend was dead. When I heard the news, I felt sadness, particularly for his mom, but not surprise. I always thought that Dennis had a death wish. Maybe it was frustrated ambition or guilt over Charles Manson or the addictions that he could never shake. Maybe our destinies are set at an early age. In the Wilson household, Brian was the genius, Carl the angel, and Dennis the rebel. And Dennis could never break that mold. Aunt Audrey used to even say that even as a boy, all Denny ever wanted was Murray's attention. Dennis did improve his ties with his father in the last few years of Murray's life, talking with him more on the phone, reliving the old days, and forgetting some kind of, and forging some kind of connection. So yeah, that's Dennis's life. I don't think I realized that he drowned that way while someone was actually watching. I didn't know that either. I honestly, my memory, and I'm probably mixing him up with someone else, was dying in a pool. But that's like so awful that, that someone it happened was there. while someone was right there, right. and that it could happen so fast, and right. there's nothing you can do. Right. Like they had tried to get him. They were like, "Whoa, whoa, buddy, you're too drunk. Don't, don't go back in the water." Right. But he was not hearing that. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I mean, I can't... Was there anything like he just basically drowned because he was drunk? Did he hit his head or something or... No, he just... Yeah, he was drunk and yeah. he drowned. Like, yeah. he swallowed some water, I think, It's also. probably pretty easy. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, there was a note in there that uh, Bill heard him take a... Like, the last thing he heard from Dennis was him take a breath of air. So yeah. I assume that meant, like, he swallowed some water. Like maybe he was struggling and his friend couldn't see him. Yeah. yeah. And then he thought, oh, Dennis is like being silly. Because Dennis was a silly guy. Like he did like to pull pranks on people. Right. Well, you can drown very fast. Yes. So, yeah. And yeah. He I was, just hadn't heard that story, I think. So I like, didn't oh know that. <laughs> I knew he drowned, but I didn't know that there was someone else with him. I didn't either. And I, 
I feel like I thought the pool or maybe I thought he just died surfing while he was drunk or something like right. in the water by himself. But right. yeah, that's so scary. It's so sad. Right. I mean, it, he had a crazy life. Yeah. And we will definitely have to revisit some Beach Boy stuff. We'll talk about Brian Wilson on another episode. Now, uh, it's funny because I can't stand Mike Love. <laughs> I have like a feud with Mike Love. Really? Why? Not at this point, but later on, it's interesting. I mean, obviously he always wasn't that way. No. But he's just because there's like a real battle for the rights to the music and who gets to call themselves the Beach Boys and all of this kind of stuff. Right. And Mike Love is sort of like, I think I think most people don't like him now. Right. Because he's sort of on the... Uh, bad side of that kind of argument. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that'll be interesting to get into more because there's I, a lot of lawsuits about it. Yeah. I mean, I honestly really didn't know much about the individual. I just, I knew, always knew like the Beach Boys Manson connection, but I yeah. never for as, I mean, I like, no, like whatever. I never really knew that much in detail about any of the members and their personal lives or whatever. Well, and for for me, I always think of Mike Love as like the person singing Kokomo. I'm sorry. Dude, yes, <laughs> me too. So I'm kind of like, fuck you. Wait, but seriously, I love the song Kokomo. You do? It's so dumb. I love it so much. I I mean, I just can't with it's that so song. It's so stupid. You know so what? Awful. You know the other horrible Beach Boys song I love is the one that opens Troop Beverly Hills. I don't know what it is. Make it big. Do, 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 is that a new do, song? So like, big. It came out in 1989. It's okay. terrible. Yes, so it's, it's fucking fun. awful, and I love it. Yeah, Kokomo is just too awful for me. Like, I don't like the sax solo. Dude. I remember the video with John Stamos. Yeah. Like, I just can't. Oh, my God. What was the... Dude. The be- okay. Some people, like, I was, like, realizing, like, some people's first impression of the Beach Boys was literally Full House. Because of right. John Stamos is like obsessed. He with was them. obsessed with the Beach Boys, and so like because John Stamos is obsessed with the Beach Boys, they made his character on Full House obsessed with the Beach Boys. Yeah, so they would like appear sometimes. Yeah, and then John Stamos's character did a cover of a Beach Boys song and sang it to Aunt Becky, <laughs> Lori Laughlin. <laughs> this it's is all so, so bad. Awful. It's so cringe. Or maybe it was to his sons he sang it. Yeah, I did not like Kokomo. I hated it when it came out. It was like. I mean, it's just always everywhere my whole life. I told like, you about how I changed the lyrics to Kokomo when I was 11 I mean, I or 10. Like I was familiar. I was like 9 or 10. Honestly, I feel like I also no, wrote I, dirty lyrics Me or and my best friend, Laura Mueller, we changed the lyrics to Kokomo, and they were fucking disgusting and filthy. And my favorite part of the lyrics change was how, um, you know that part in Kokomo where it goes, Port, a uh, prince, <laughs> I want to catch a glimpse. Yes. Well, we changed that to Port, a uh, prince, I want to catch a glimpse of your tits. <laughs> I love the... Uh, we just had to add that Can in I just there. say, unrelated to the Beach Boys, I also did a lyric change very similar to you <laughs> when I I did a recording at Six Flags. You, you used to be able to go <laughs> yes, into yes. the booth and do a, like a karaoke yes. recording and ha- get like a cassette. Yes, I've done and that. And I did um, Nothing Compares to You. And then at the end, I said, Nothing Compares... You know how she spaces yes. it out to you? And I said, to your dick. <laughs> <laughs> and like when I came out to get the, the tape, like all the teen boys who worked there were like dying. Oh, because they could hear it Because they could hear you recording. It's like this whole thing. And I was like, to your dick. <laughs> it's completely improvised, how by the way. How old were you? I don't know. Like fucking teenager. Like oh, whatever. Honey. I thought it was fucking hilarious. It is funny. It was funny. I wish I still had it. Dude. Me too. Um, but yeah. So, see, that's why we're friends. <laughs> that is why we're friends. We both like to add little... The other lyric was, We'll be falling in love to the rhythm of a vibrator band. <laughs> Jesus. I was 10 when I wrote these lyrics. They were very advanced. They were very advanced. Um, that That's like a song... I hate when you hate a song, but you know literally every single word in every musical <laughs> Oh, totally. <laughs> like, I know that song, like, back and forth by Dude. heart, like, for real. It's like, so stupid. It's so irritating. But I love it. Yeah. I fucking love Kokomo. Oh. That is the best part of the song, though, when it's like, da-da, da-da. Yeah, <laughs> like, that is. part, yeah. like, the little Lord, quiet bit. A prince, I want to catch a glimpse. <laughs> yeah, it is a good part. Uh, but then the sax uh, comes curious. in. The sax is awful. The sax is really Terrible. awful. Oh, see, now I'm at that song. Wait, what Beach Boys songs do you like? 
I like God Only Knows. I mean, it's one of my favorite who songs. Who the hell don't? ever? Everyone. <laughs> I mean, that is a perfect song. Um, what's the one? Sloop John B. I, I love like that, that one. Song. That's a good one. I mean, one. I like a lot. I like a lot of songs on Pet Sounds. Um, yeah. I don't really love a lot of the surfer stuff. Like, it's just not my favorite style of music. Yeah. I do have a soft spot for California girls, but I love, like the, I love the love David it. Lee Roth version. Stop it. Desi, you're so trash. You are fucking Florida trash. You fucking trash And I love bag. that video, too. It's like an amazing Dude, fucking it video. Is, it is amazing. Please, well, the ice cream? Yes. It's an amazing I, video. Look, I do love a David Lee Roth cover. I do have a soft spot for Zibbity Bop. Yeah. The, I like just a gigolo, just a gigolo is an amazing cover. Just a gigolo is one of the best covers of all time. Amazing. It's I love incredible. that song. It's the best. I'm so, going to yeah. listen to it when you leave. Okay. Maybe I'll play it while you're leaving. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. As your exit, exit song. song. Wonderful. Um, cool. All right. That's okay, it. Bye. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.